series in 2 Thessalonians, continuing from having finished 1 Thessalonians. And in this first chapter that we're beginning to look at, we really see a list of reasons to have hope in a world that is not our own, a world that is hostile, (coughs) a world that, as Scripture says, belongs to the devil a world that wants to thwart our efforts to be holy and godly and to lead a godly life. (coughs) Excuse me, the smoke this morning seems to be worse than it's been for a bit. And in, in our passage today, we'll read the whole chapter, but we'll be looking primarily at verse 5 which really means we'll be looking at 4 through 6 a little bit, but focusing on verse 5 today. And the question that people will often ask is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, when we think it should go well with the good and ill with the wicked, do we see the opposite in our lives? I remember, and I think I've shared this before, about my Jewish dentist trying to talk to me about the book that he was reading from a Jewish rabbi. Now, I was having, I broke my front teeth playing ball in the street when I was a kid, and he was putting a crown on it. So as you can imagine, he's grinding away with both hands in my mouth. I can't speak to him. And he's telling me about how it's their belief that God is doing the best he can. And it just made me groan. It's like, do you not know the God of heaven, who is all-powerful, who works out all things according to the counsel of his own will? But the world often takes that opinion. They think, God wants me to be happy, to have a wonderful life, to have all that I need, to be healthy, to be content. And when things don't go that way, something has gone wrong with God. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. This world is not our own. The things of this world don't belong to us and are not important. We should set our hearts and minds on heavenly things. And so... They think sometimes God is weak, or they may think that chance controls our lives, not the sovereignty of God. And they struggle. But when we read passages like we're reading today, we can understand that God is sovereign. God has a plan, and his ways are not our ways. He is beyond understanding and finding out. And there is, though, hope. The hope is not in ourselves, not in what we desire, but hope in God. Hope in his plan. Hope in his ability to work out all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1. And so as we read this passage, think about the things that are hopeful. It doesn't always sound like it's hopeful, but there are many things to give us hope if Our eyes are on the prize and we are thinking about eternity with God as our goal, our desire, our our hope. So let us read 2 Thessalonians, and we'll read through chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the numerous encouragements and signs of hope we see in your word, and pray that as we look at those today and think about this one verse, the evidence of God's righteous judgment and being considered worthy of the kingdom and suffering for it, pray that you would help us to find great hope and great joy and great contentment in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see it starts off with your, with this is evidence. Now, when we look at that, we need to think, what is evidence, first of all? And the words this is are not actually in the Greek, because Greek is one of those weird languages where the B verb can be dropped and it's still understood. You don't need to say is. Uh, but saying this is makes it a little more confusing. It's actually joined to the previous verse. In fact, the Greek just has a comma between it. Uh, I think in the earliest Greeks, you won't even find commas, just spaces between sentences. So we can see that it would be attached to verse 4. And verse 4 talks about their steadfastness and faith in all their persecutions and afflictions that they are enduring. And mo most people think that that's where we're talking about. The context is, and I think rightly so, that not verse 6 through 10, but verse 4, that the righteous judgment of God is counting us worthy for his kingdom. We don't see it as the coming judgment. They don't see it, but as... Uh, their demonstrated steadfastness and faith while enduring persecution and infliction. Uh, scripture says that you'll recognize them by your fruits and our worthiness for the kingdom, I think we see throughout the New Testament, is really understood in, in having that heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh by God, uh, having a spirit put in us, uh, causing us to live that new life in him as we saw in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, many times. This new life is described by Jesus as our being called out of the world. Right? Our old life was in the world and the things of the world and the concerns of the world and the people of the world. But he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you, John 15, 19. Two things to note there. The first is that God is the one who did the choosing and changing of our hearts. And the result of his choosing and changing our hearts is that we're no longer part of this world. And the people of the world recognize us as foreigners and as enemies. God, having changed our hearts, we should be living then a new life and that is all, that new life will result in the persecutions that in our passage today, Paul is saying are evidence of God's judgment and of our being considered worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says elsewhere that we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Being in the image of his son, we are no longer in the image of sinful man. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he glorified. We all know that passage from Romans 8, 28, and that great promise that he will work all things together for our good, even the persecutions the Thessalonians were suffering. Remember the context here, right? Paul was driven out of Thessalonica after only a short time. He hadn't even been allowed to finish the basics of the Christian faith. The violence and the persecution became so great that he needed to leave 
for not just his own safety, but the safety of the church, that its persecution would not be too fierce and the brand new believers would not be crushed. So he wrote them the first letter, helping them to understand the Christian life in light of persecution. And now in the second letter, he's dealing with some issues that have come up as false teachers have already made their way into the church in Thessalonica, even though it's still under terrible persecution. And so we're having been called according to the purpose, God is going to work out for them all things for their good. And that includes the suffering that they're enduring. The suffering they're enduring is part of what will make them better Christian. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But we have been called according to his purpose. And Jesus is able, therefore, to say that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Because God has called them, because God has given them to his son, his son takes care of them. And they have this great encouragement in their life that having been called, having shown that they've been called by living this new life, which he has praised them for, right? Verse 3 and 4, 4 in particular, I boast about you because of your steadfastness and faith in your persecution. That has been brought about by God transforming them into the image of his son. And that makes us worthy of his kingdom, not by works, as we'll see, but by by God's trying and testing and, and training. Now, some do mistakenly consider this to be talking about merit. Instead of considering us worthy, they put something more like, earning our worthiness. In fact, the RSV translates this made worthy in support of their view. The the view is to be rejected for a number of reasons, and we'll look at that when we get further down and consider that part of the passage. I don't want to tackle that now. Uh, But probably this is linked to verse 4. Others also take it as it's true, the godly suffering and persecution and affliction at the hands of the ungodly is evidence of God's impending judgment in the last day. Why? Well, because God is perfect in his justice, and he is suffering injustice to be done to us now. He therefore has to make justice out of that, or he wouldn't be truly just. And so, therefore, there must be a judgment. We see the wicked, and this was a big problem with the church in Cambodia. They didn't understand. You know, why do the evil people, why does the corrupt government official live his whole life in power and luxury and happiness and the believers suffer? Well, because their end is destruction and your end is eternal joy with God in heaven. Therefore, justice must be done down the road, not today. He's giving them time to repent. He's giving them time to hear the gospel, to be called. And many of us, who weren't Christians from our youth, are thankful that he doesn't, you know, kill us for our sins. I persecuted Christians in my youth, in my post-college days, and if God had brought me to justice then, I never would have become a Christian. And we can understand that God has deferred justice until the time he has appointed. And so that is to be a matter of hope for us, And that is what verse 6 and following are really talking about, that the Lord will, in the day he returns, bring justice to the world. And so while that is true, I don't think that's really the focus, though, of this as it's connected to verse 4. We see that the evidence of his righteous judgment from God is connected, I think, to their steadfast faith in persecution. Uh, Persecution is inevitable for the Christian. We talked about that a lot last week or last time. And we are appointed to that. We are appointed to suffer for the name of Christ. We know that we're from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If it's the enemy's kingdom and we're living in it, we're going to suffer for that. It's inevitable. And it's fine. 
we still have to live holy lives. We must live Christian lives and build Christian character in a world that belongs to the devil, a world that rejects the biblical truth, a world dominated by anti-Christian ideas. We still as Christians need to develop Christian character, Christian attitude, and be demonstrating our faith to the world that the gospel might reach those, particularly those who belong to God and have yet to be called. Our faith is not something fragile. Uh, People sometimes think that we need to protect our faith from the world. The world will destroy our faith. We will lose our faith. And they want to hide it and shelter it and keep the persecution away from it, keep the trials away from faith, that it won't be damaged. But remember what Paul says, talking about the whole armor of God. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6.16. Think about that. Our faith is not something we shield and hide and shelter and bury under the ground. Our faith is the shield that we put before us that shelters us from all of the trials and all of the troubles and all of the attacks of the world. It is the shield that protects us if it is real, if it is true. And that faith, of course, needs to be grown and exercised. And as we've spoken about before, how do we exercise our faith? We exercise our faith by being in a situation where we don't know what's going to happen or we don't like what's happening and trusting that God will really work it out according to his purpose, that he will work it for our good because he has promised that. And believing that in our heart and not being as anxious and not falling apart and not coming undone or being angry, that is the exercise of our faith which develops stronger and stronger faith. And how is it doing that? Because we're using that faith as our shield to protect us from the darts, the flaming darts of the evil one. So God really uses our persecutions. He uses our afflictions, our trials, health problems, the fires that caused our evacuation, sickness, long-term diseases, even terminal diseases. He uses all of those to accomplish his goal, that believers through them should be counted worthier or seem to be worthy to enter the kingdom of God for which they suffer. It's especially true of those persecutions we face. Now, I said I'd talk about it a little later, and now is the time that we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? First and foremost, I want to say to be considered worthy cannot mean to earn your place by your suffering, because Scripture clearly teaches us that our place is given to us by grace, not works. In Romans 11, Paul says, What then did God reject his people, speaking of the Jews? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He is one of those foreknew the elect. He, Paul himself, is one of the elect, and he is a Jew. God has not forsaken the Jew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Isaiah, or of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now that might sound like not bowing the knee to Baal was a work that they did which has earned their place, but he follows on to say, So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The 7,000 that were chosen were chosen as a free gift. Grace is a gift that you cannot earn. Uh, Paul talks about that earlier in Romans when he talks about Abraham. If he was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. For what the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, 
but as his due. In other words, if it was a work that had earned him this, it couldn't be called grace, because it would be his due, his wages. The wages of sin is death. But here we're told it is grace by which we are saved. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that is by grace, it is a free gift. We're saved by that grace. The reformers said it best. They said we are saved, and our context may be made worthy of the kingdom, but we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. If we've been saved, we have a new heart. We have the spirit in us. We have a new life. We're being transformed. And what happens naturally if you're a new person in a new life and you're being transformed? Well, you start to do what God wants. That's what it says in that Ezekiel 36 passage. He's put his spirit in us, causing us to be careful to keep his commandment. We're going to live a new life. And that new life is also an evidence of our salvation, something that can give us confidence and hope in the right time. I want to think about an example right now. Remember the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5? They were arrested because they continued to preach the gospel in the temple. And the Sanhedrin said, you've been forbidden to preach. What are you doing? And Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And set the Sanhedrin rather straight on their sin of murdering the Messiah and also the gospel. They had no accommodation of the Sanhedrin's belief beliefs. They had no willingness to, to hide their faith under the ground. They, they boldly proclaimed, this is what God has done and this is what God has said. And what was the result? Well, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, Acts 5.33. Uh, proving the Holy Spirit's world, words through Paul, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Second Timothy 3.12. Jesus also spoke of this if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. And so if you belong to Christ, you are no longer part of this world. You are now in an enemy's country. And they see you and they know that. Well, do they know that? I remember being asked when I first became a Christian, you know, if you were tried by your neighbors and your family and the people at work, could they prove you were a Christian and put you in jail? If it came, you know, if we came to that. And the answer for many is no. You know, I check my religion at the door. It's for Sunday at church. But that's not how it should be. If we're really taken out of the world, if we really belong to Christ, we are in his kingdom now, not the world's kingdom. And they will see it, they will know it, and they will hate you. There are only two options here. You're one of them, or you're their enemy. And they will see that, and they will know that. So the Sanhedrin put the apostles out so they could have a private discussion of how to stop them and how to destroy them. And they called the apostles back in in verse 40, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. And what did, the, what did the apostles do? Oh, woe is me. Oh, I need to re rethink the way I'm doing this, because if I'm being beaten, it's obvious that God is not with me, and I need to correct my thinking and my behavior and my teaching. No, what did they do? It says, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's Acts chapter 5. Now here you see the apostles being persecuted, but by who? By the secular authorities, by the godless? I think it's important for us to really think about this. Who was persecuting them? The leaders of their religion. You know, we've come to that point in this world today where the Christian is again being persecuted by the church. 
We were talking before church started today about a story from Ireland, a man who will not use the proper pronouns when referring to a child, the chosen pronoun, just on using the real one. The church and the state working together have put the man in jail. Not just the state, but the church in his place was opposing his refusal to honor the chosen pronoun instead of the real pronoun. Think about that. Ireland, this isn't the third world. This isn't a Muslim-controlled country or a Hindu country or a Buddhist country. This is ostensibly a Christian country. And yet, the church in that country was persecuting the believers for not being flexible enough to accommodate the world's sinful beliefs. It's a serious issue because we start to see that more and more, and we see it in America. Churches rebuking people for not honoring the current theology of wokeness, of racial bias, of gender bias, and insisting that the things of the Lord are true. No, you can't say that people based on the color of their skin are more sinful than other people. You say that in some churches, and they're going to call you wrong. We're getting to the day where we will suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, even from within the church. And that's what was afflicting them in in Acts, and really throughout the New Testament era, all of the problems that the, Jew, the Jews caused in the Bible, but also the, the problems the apostate church causes to this very day. Of course, you can't be persecuted for the name unless you're standing for it. Think carefully about what they said. Look at what they actually said to the Sanhedrin. If we look at verse 30 and following of Acts chapter, or 29 and following of Acts chapter 9, they said we must obey God rather than men. I read that, but I skipped over this. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Think about it. The accommodating person will say, Well, they brought it upon themselves. They could have given a soft answer and turned away wrath, as the proverb says. They deserved a beating because they mouthed off to the leaders. Accusing the Sanhedrin of murder, murdering their Messiah. They were undoubtedly guilty of this. But that was an unnecessary provocation, some might say. And it's natural that it resulted in punishment. They might even want to quote Peter, the passage we studied earlier. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, the accommodating person will say the apostles did evil and were punished, not to follow their error. They were harsh, that they were not honoring and respecting the Sanhedrin. But the believer can clearly see that the Holy Spirit is writing through Luke in the book of Acts, doesn't betray their action in any way as sinful. There's no calling them out on their error. There's no correcting them. Their actions were holy and correct. They called sin, sin. They did so with respect. They didn't rage and rampage. You murderers belong in hell. That would have been wrong. They told them, you killed him by nailing him on the cross. They called them to confess their sin, repent of their sin, deal with their sin. And they did it with honor and respect. But if you do it that way, what's going to happen? Love for sinners 
is never seen in scripture as hiding the offense that they've committed. It's never seen as hiding the offense of their cross so that they don't get offended, so they don't persecute you. That's not how love is portrayed in the Bible. Biblical love for sinners is found in calling them on their sin, calling them to repentance, repentance unto life, calling them to the true gospel. Unless you have your sins covered by the blood of Christ, unless your faith in Christ and his work on the cross pays for your sins, there is no hope for you. And I, I think that's what they were doing. You killed him, but he is Lord. Turn from your ways. Peter said it must be done with gentleness and respect, honor and respect, depending on your translation. But it's done that way in order that it is the offense of the cross that angers them, not the offense of our personality. I've admitted before, and I'll admit again, my personality can be quite harsh. And I really need to work on controlling it. And I do. I take Paul's admonition to Timothy that, you know, he must be patient and long-suffering and enduring evil in the hope that they will be brought to repentance and turn from their sin. Turning away from our violence and our rage is really critical to the testimony of Jesus Christ and of his gospel. Now, if we're to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God through our endurance and persecution, we have to think about what that means. Nowhere is it taught in Scripture that salvation and entrance to the kingdom is of works. It's of grace. It's a free and unmerited gift of God. It's him choosing to love his enemies who are dead in their trespasses and sins and transform them into the image of his son. We see this in Romans 5.10, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, Colossians 3, 13 and 14. We also talked last week about the price to be paid to be a disciple of Christ, to enter the kingdom of God. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We read that last week. And he gives the example. This is Luke 14, 27 and following. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, the same is the cost of discipleship. A lot of people are like the like the seed thrown on, sown on rocky ground. You know, they have no roots. When persecution, when trouble comes, they wither and die. They turn from God and go, their, go back to their life. And people will mock them. Oh, you were a Christian and you left? Why did you even go? Or what king is going out to encounter another king in war and will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So, for, so therefore, any one of you who will not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, giving up all that we have. You think about Paul. Remember, he was a Jew, a leader, rising faster than others around his age. He was destined, if he had continued as a Jew, to become a rabbi. Rabbis were well cared for. They were well protected. They had many people who respected and honored them. They sat in the seat of power and authority. Yet Paul says he considered all that rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing Christ as Savior. If we are not willing to renounce all of the things of this life, all of the things of the world, we cannot be his disciple. If you shun the price of being a disciple, if you shun the persecution and the suffering of the cross, the embarrassment of being a Christian, it is really the evidence of our unworthiness for the kingdom. It's evident that you don't have a new heart and a new life, that it is, in fact, bad fruit. As Jesus denounces, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But the one who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. 
Note that there's no middle ground. Either you're acknowledging before men or you're denying him before men. There's no place for burying our talent in the ground and expecting to be found worthy of the kingdom of God. Because if we hide our faith, if we are ashamed of our faith, if we are ashamed of Christ and testifying for him, or we're just afraid of the trouble that that always brings us, then how are we not denying him before men? It's a sad thing, but he has called us out of the world that we might be a testimony, a living testimony for him. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be renewed, restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under feet. He also says, you are the light of the world. A city on its hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on its stands, so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Your Father who is in heaven, Matthew five thirteen and 14. Remember the passage, God so loved the world. What does it say about the light? They hated the light and would not come into the light because their deeds were evil. If you are a light, they see their deeds as evil. They know God's judgment. They know about hell. Whatever they may pretend, whatever they may tell themselves, it's clear to them. And they will not respond well to that. But with persecution, standing out for Christ will bring persecution. Evil, Indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. 2 Timothy 3. 12 through 14. Now, I haven't really gotten to the issue. How are we considered worthy of the kingdom of God by enduring the inevitable persecution? And I think it's time we talked about that. Peter, speaking of our salvation, says that in this you rejoice, so now for in a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Talking about the same thing Paul is talking about here in Thessalonians. We're talking about the return of Christ in this passage we're reading. How are we considered to be worthy? Well, because we have been tested, tried, and shown to be worthy. We did not earn our worthiness that way. We have demonstrated what has happened in our life. So the tested genuineness of our faith with its more precious and gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. That tested genuineness of our faith demonstrates and assures us of our salvation. It's how we know we have been called, we are worthy, how we have been shown to be worthy of the kingdom of God. Peter continues later in the book saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as so something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does this mean? Well, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you, your life is different. You are seen not to be part of the world. You are persecuted, and you should rejoice in those sufferings because Jesus was treated the same way. He came as the Lord of glory. He convicted men of their sins. He preached the truth to them, preached the gospel to them, and their reaction was, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas the murderer, not Christ. 
the king. And so we are sharing in the suffering of our Lord through our persecutions, and that is one of the evidences to us that we are fit to enter the kingdom of God. We have been considered worthy. We are being counted as worthy through that. Paul warns us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial altar of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Suffering at the hands of this crooked and twisted generation shows that the ministry that Paul has, the ministry that the pastor, the evangelist has had in your life is not in vain, and that you have not labored in vain, (coughs) but can rejoice in God's goodness and righteous judgment. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the second encouragement we find in this passage about God bringing justice to those who afflict us. But for today, it's enough to think about our sufferings not as unfortunate evils that fall upon us that God cannot protect us from, not as chance events that are bad, but as an opportunity to try and test our faith, an opportunity to build our faith, that it builds strength upon strength upon strength because we have tested and tried our faith and we improve it day by day in that way by being faithful, by as we saw in verse 4, by steadfastness and faith, holding that shield of faith up to protect ourselves, not being ashamed of the gospel and not being ashamed of the Lord of glory. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many mercies and strength. We thank you, Lord, that we need not be confused about why bad things happen. We know, first, Lord, though we did not talk about it today, that the wages of sin is death, and we have all sinned and all deserve death. Not just the first death, but the second death, an eternity of punishment and torment away from your presence, as this passage speaks about later in verse 9. But also, Lord, we know that, that you have cleansed us from our sins. You have changed our heart. You have changed our life. You have put your spirit in us. And the evidence of that, being able to persevere in the face of trials, being able to have faith in all things, being able to trust you no matter what comes our way, this is evidence, Lord, of your judgment, of your righteous judgment, evidence that we are considered worthy of the kingdom of God, not due to our works, but due to the fact that you have shown mercy in giving us a new heart and a new spirit. And pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we face many trials and troubles and persecutions. And beyond that, we face problems like the fires, problems in our health, problems in the world. We know, Lord, that we can have great confidence in you who began a good work in us will surely bring it to completion in the day of the Lord. And so we ask, Lord, to strengthen our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.